Prince Harry of England and his mixed-race American wife have had a baby. And the question the Los Angeles Times is asking is, quote, will Meghan Markle and Prince Harry raise their baby to be black, unquote. Now you're probably thinking, oh, Andrew Claven, you're such a funny, satirical sort of guy. You always make me laugh out loud, and you're so good-looking, too. And normally, I'd agree with you. But no, this time, it isn't just me trying to make American journalists sound so race-obsessed they're like some leftover Nazi lunatic raving in his padded cell about the bloodline of a baby who is seventh in line to a throne with no power in a country the size of Oregon. This is a real headline on an op-ed written by Carla Hall, who's actually on the L.A. Times editorial board. Carla writes, quote, and these are real quotes, Baby Sussex, as he's called for the moment, needs to know about what it means to be a black person in the world today. Of course, there is no one black experience except perhaps a cop stopping you because you look like a suspect, unquote. And yes, it will be interesting to see Baby Sussex pulled over by a cop who asks, hey, black guy, where did you get that motorcade? (laughs) Over, Over CNN, John Blake asks, How black will the royal baby be? There are questions about how to racially define the royal baby, John writes in the passive voice, because no one is actually asking such questions. He goes on to say, quote, left unsaid is something no one has seriously suggested. Why not call the baby white? Why? Because much of the talk about the baby's racial identity has echoes of the one drop rule from slavery and the Jim Crow era, unquote. Life is going to be tough on baby Sussex. (laughs) Not real life, life in the news media, which has nothing to do with real life. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, yeah. oh, hooray, hurrah. You know, the fact is, I don't really know very much about the British royal family because I'm not a girl. But apparently, there is this new royal baby, and her mom is an American TV actress who is some part black. And so now our left-wing press is obsessing about the child's race. And I'm going to assume, if you are a girl, that something might be interesting about this, because the throne of Britain is still very central to the quest for the Holy Grail or something. But the race obsession is disgusting. It's disgusting. Here's the deal. Because of nature, evolution, or whatever, people are built with tribal sympathies. These sympathies cause them to order the world according to their races. China for the Chinese, Sweden for the Swedes, England for the homosexuals, and so on. Over time, our moral sense rose above these primitive sympathies and envisioned a world in which all men, and even some women, are considered children of God. We called this idea Christianity, and it slowly transformed our civilization for the better. So hurrah, it's time to move on. When primitive feelings of tribalism come up, we lay them aside the same way we lay aside other primitive feelings like lust and greed when they're out of keeping with our moral vision. But for the left, who have an underlying notion of humankind as perfectible and no idea of a forgiving God, the guilt of past actions never goes away, especially when that guilt can be sloughed off on the opposition. We call this philosophy 
anti-Christianity, and it's the left's religion. Now, why am I talking about this? It's because racial pathology, the sick and ugly, and did I say sick? Because it's also ugly idea that we can fix our tribal past with more racism, more race obsession, uh, obsession, more tribalism. This is chiefly what caused the left's reaction to the election of our last president, the light brown-skinned Barack Obama. Every stupid thing the man did was an act of genius, and any criticize criticism of him was an act of racism. It was a sick and ugly reaction of worship and moral blindness to overcorrect for the tribal glitches of the human mind. In fact, Obama, a human being, an individual who has to be responsible for himself, and he was an incompetent president and a corrupt one. And for eight years, our leftist press covered that up because of their sick and twisted, and did I mention sick and also ugly, racism. Now the suppressed truth is rising and it's driving the left insane. Rather than put aside their sickness or face their sickness, they're just getting sicker and sicker because they can't handle the truth. I will show you what I mean. But first, we will talk about something far, far more pleasant. You know, every Monday, I have Michael Knowles come on the show, and I, I tell him it's because he's my cultural correspondent, but really, it's because I want you to look at him and think, why, oh, why did you not use ZipRecruiter? ZipRecruiter makes hiring easy. It sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. They actually go out and find people for you. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's pretty cheap. It's free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. As all one word, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. Do not let Michael Knowles happen to you. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. All right. So... I know Obama's in the past, and I don't want to harp on his mistakes, and I don't want to harp on his errors and his corruption and his incompetence, but it's important to remember the same people who are reporting Trump to you now reported Obama, and this is how they felt about him. Here is Newsweek's uh, editor, Evan Tomlins, at the time, talking about Obama and comparing him to Ronald Reagan, and I play this because it's representative of the way the press covered this president. Reagan was all about America. <clears throat> And you talked about it. Obama is, we are above that now. We're not just parochial. We're not just chauvinistic. We're not just provincial. We stand for something. I mean, in a way, Obama's standing above the country, above, above the world. He's sort of God. He's, he, he's, yeah. he's going to bring all different sides together. He's sort of God. And he's God in a specific way. He's God in that he doesn't just look at America. He doesn't just bless America. He blesses all mankind, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is why we've never elected God president, because we want a president who is a human being specific to America looking out for American interests. We know, we know that God loves all mankind, but here in this faulty, fallen, sinful earth, we need people to lead and to protect our country from other countries and to make sure our country is taken care of. But Obama was God, and it wasn't just that guy. It was the guy from the New York Times asking Obama when he got a, a chance to ask him a question, what enchants you about the presidency? It was all the, the guy who called him in the San Francisco press, called him a light worker. I mean, it was this nutty, nutty idea, and it was based on racial pathology. It was not just the fact that Obama was a leftist, though he was. It was not just that. It was based 
based on this incredible racial sickness that the left has fallen into, and it is a sickness. I mean, look, we have all kinds of feelings. We're human beings. If you're a guy, you probably want to sleep with every pretty girl who walks by, but you don't because you are also a moral entity. So you correct for that. If you're if you're a human being, you have racial sympathies. You you know I I get excited when I see a Jewish baseball player hit a home run or whatever. You know that we all have racial sympathies, but you overcome them because you have a, you're a moral entity and you believe in the brotherhood of man under God. You believe we're all created as equal. Now it's coming out. What, what was obvious to anybody who was watching before, that Obama really did misuse the, the arms of power of the government. And one of the worst ways he misused them is he sent the FBI to spy on an opposition candidate. Now, it's possible. Uh, we ha still don't know the truth of this. It's possible the FBI acted uh, in good faith. It's possible they thought, oh, my gosh, you know, Russia, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. They panicked one way or the other. It is possible they were not acting purely politically, but somebody should have stopped them because this was really, really bad behavior. So the headline in the New York Times today that everybody is just so excited about, and, and here's my, my point, is decade in the red, Trump tax figures show over $1 billion in business losses. Because the real story, as it is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, is the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz, has been investigating how this investigation, the FBI investigation into Donald Trump and this Russian collusion hoax got started. He's investigating that. And rather than cover this, they, they release somebody has given Trump's tax returns to The New York Times to cover this story up. So here it is. You know, they're so excited. Front page news. By the time his master of the universe memoir, Trump, the Art of the Deal, hit bookstores in 1987, Donald Trump was already in deep financial distress, losing tens of millions of dollars on troubled business deals, according to previously unrevealed figures from his federal income tax returns. So important that we have these income tax returns for some reason. It probably has also has to do with the Holy Grail. Mr. Trump was propelled to the presidency in part by a self-spun narrative of business success and of setbacks triumphantly overcome. He has attributed his first run of reversals and bankruptcies to the recession that took hold in 1990, but 10 years of tax information obtained by the New York Times paints a different and far bleaker picture of his deal-making abilities and financial condition. Here's how the Democrats, the other Democrats, by whom I mean the news media, here's how they covered this story. This is the montage, 11. This is a guy who wrote a memoir about Art of the Deal in 1987 and lost tens of millions of dollars that year. Does this to you explain why he doesn't, doesn't want anyone to have this information? That he was such a loser. I well, mean, that's the. I mean, that because this. I mean, the reason I say that word. I'm not trying to be funny. He uses that word all the time. He calls people losers, and he he has such disdain and 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 and, and you know ugh, drips with with horror when he uses that word. And yet he was literally the biggest loser in the country. The man who ran for president on his reputation as a billionaire business genius was a really, really, really lousy businessman. So this is such an exciting story because we've never heard it before unless you happen to watch The Apprentice. Uh, Phil Kirpin on Twitter found, made this find. It was a really good find, so I want to give him credit for it. But this is the opening of the show The Apprentice. My name's Donald Trump, and I'm the largest real estate developer in New York. I own buildings all over the place, model agencies, the Miss Universe pageant, jetliners, golf courses, casinos and private resorts like Mar-a-Lago. 
one of the most spectacular states anywhere in the world. But it wasn't always so easy. About 13 years ago, I was seriously in trouble. I was billions of dollars in debt. But I fought back and I won, big league. I used my brain, I used my negotiating skills, and I worked it all out. Now my company's bigger than it ever was, it's stronger than it ever was, and I'm having more fun than I ever had. I've mastered the art of the deal and have turned the name Trump into the highest quality brand. And as the master, I want to pass along my knowledge to somebody else. I'm looking for The Apprentice. <laughs> Triad is the lead into the show. He's bragging about what the New York Times. I mean, I think the people in the New York Times have to get out more. It really reminds me of that scene in the what was the movie? I think it was called Species, where somebody said we we worked, we were experimenting on women because uh, they were less aggressive. And the guy says, I think you need to get out more. That's the way I feel about the New York Times. It's like they don't have no idea. They know that their readers are getting all their information from outlets like the New York Times. Just to drive this point home, here is Ivanka in an old, old um, documentary. I'm not sure what date this came out. Uh, the documentary is called Ivanka Trump Born Rich, describing a moment. She says she's eight or nine, so that would make it about 90 or 91. So this is exactly the time the Times is talking about, describing a moment when she sees a homeless guy. She's walking with her dad, and she just sees a homeless guy outside of Trump Tower. I remember once my father and I were walking down Fifth Avenue, and there was a homeless person sitting, um, sitting right outside of Trump Tower. And I think I was probably maybe nine, nine, ten, something like this. It was around the same time as the divorce. And I remember my father pointing to him and saying, you know, that guy has eight billion dollars more than me because he was in such extreme debt at that point, you know. And, um, and me thinking, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? He's, he was sitting outside of Trump Tower and I'm looking and I'm going, you know, and I didn't understand and sort of, and I think I just thought about it maybe like a year or two ago and I, you know, I found it interesting. You know, it makes me all the more proud of my parents. They got through that. She's all the more proud of, of course, more proud of her parents for getting through it. As this is what businessmen do. I've known a lot of entrepreneurs and man, they, they fly close to the wind. There's no question about it. I've always kind of admired them for it. This is part of the Trump legend, which the New York Times is now broadcasting to keep from writing about the fact that their messiah, their hero, their, their uh, great, somewhat brown-skinned hope uh, was not a very good president. You know, I use ExpressVPN. Here is something, I should say something nice about Michael Knowles. He introduced me to ExpressVPN because, you know, it's easy to think that cybercrime is something that happens to other people, that no one wants your data or that hackers can't get in on your stuff. But you'd be wrong because stealing data from unsuspecting people like you and me is one of the simplest and cheapest ways for hackers to make money. And you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. And that's why I put ExpressVPN on my computer because it secures and anonymizes my internet browsing, it encrypts my data, hides my public IP address, it's easy to use, it's got these apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. It costs less than seven bucks a month. And for that, you can find out why ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Clavin. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Clavin for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com 
slash Clavin to learn more. You do not want people stealing information from you. Like, for instance, how do you spell Clavin? Not everybody knows. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. When you, do, you know, T.S. Eliot, one of my favorite lines, I'm going to quote it off the top of my head, so maybe I won't get it exactly right. One of my favorite lines in all of poetry is in four quartets, T.S. Eliot, humankind cannot bear too much reality. And it was as if he was using his poetic genius to look into the future and see the Democrat Party today. Because when they get, when reality rises up, they are protecting a view of humankind, a view of truth and a view of, of reality that is simply not supportable. And when you do that long enough, you go nuts. I want to show you what Trump has done to Nancy Pelosi, okay? Because it, M Cocaine Mitch, Mitch McCain, M Mitch McCain, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, Cocaine Mitch, got up and gave a speech about the fact, you know, now what's happening in the uh, in the House is they're threatening to hold Attorney General Barr in contempt. Uh, they're screaming and yelling. And Trump, of course, loves this stuff. He knows, he knows right where they live. And he has now uh, said that the Mueller report, the underlying uh, facts in the Mueller report are protected by executive privilege because he knows he's driving them nuts. And Mitch McConnell got up and gave the speech that it's time to let this stupid thing go. Here it is. What we've seen is a meltdown, an absolute meltdown, an inability to accept the bottom line conclusion on Russian interference from the special counsel's report, which said the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. That's the conclusion. Two years of exhaustive investigation and nothing to establish the fanciful conspiracy theory that Democratic politicians and TV talking heads had treated like a foregone conclusion. They told everyone there had been a conspiracy between Russia and the Trump campaign. Yet on this central question, the special counsel's finding is clear. Case closed. Case closed. <laughs> so Nancy Pelosi is up. I think she's at Cornell. And they, they ask her about this speech. And you gotta, you gotta just, uh, if you can see it, if you're watching, you can see it, but you can hear it in her voice anyway. Listen to her respond. Today on the floor of the House, oh, excuse me, of the Senate, we're not in session, well, we'll be in session later today. On the floor of the Senate, Senator McConnell is reported to be saying, doesn't matter to hear from Mueller, case closed. Case closed. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's that same mentality that is just not about um, doing the right, getting results for the American people. But it's this, it's who he is. And no, I know this is a nonpartisan setting, but just as a matter of observation, that's just not a fact. The case is not closed. <laughs> well, let's see. What They're using the term in two different ways. What McConnell is saying is the case is closed and that the truth has been decided. Donald Trump did not, uh, you know, uh, collude with the Russians to uh, overturn the election. The, the government is, in fact, strengthening its procedures to deal with the kinds of minor things uh, that the Russians did, and we don't want them doing it, but we do it to them, I'm sure. It's just, it's just spy versus spy. Although, of course, we can't use the word spy versus spy anymore. We'll call it Obama versus Obama. Um, so, <laughs> so they're left now with the fact that 
Trump is doing everything he can to drive them nuts because he knows they're not living in reality. He knows, in fact, the case is closed. He knows it is. He knows, except for the far left, except for their base, the case is over. Nobody cares. Nobody's talking about it. None of the candidates is talking about it because they're going to these town hall meetings and their uh, campaign meetings, and nobody cares, okay? So now Nancy Pelosi is caught between a rock and a hard place, and everybody talks about, oh, how incredible Nancy Pelosi is at manipulating Trump, and remember when she applauded during his State of the Union, and that became a big deal, the left clinging to whatever they had. Donald Trump is driving this woman up the wall, the same Cornell meeting, she starts to talk about whether they should impeach Trump. Listen to this. Trump is goading us to impeach him. That's what he's doing. Every single day, he's just like taunting, 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 because he knows that it would be very divisive in the country, but he doesn't really care. Just wants to solidify his base. That might have been too political, so, you know, Criticize me for that. The, but that's what it, what it is. So we, we can't impeach him for political reasons, and we can't not impeach him for political reasons. But we have to see where the facts take us. If you could look in her eyes at this point, it's like, come along, Nancy. We have a nice little white room for you. Donald Trump is playing them because he can play them because they have to they have to keep away from the truth, which is what happened over these last eight years. And if it were just politics, if it were just Nancy Pelosi, it'd be one thing. But it's the entire press. The entire press betrayed every principle that journalism works on. They betrayed them all to cover up for this guy, to, to uh, deify this guy, to hagiographize uh, Barack Obama because they cannot accept that the, this racial, this idea of race that they are now so obsessed with is over. We get it. It's over. They will not let it go because they think it's good for them politically, but also because of their own philosophy, their own sense that, you know, human beings should be perfect and therefore if they're not perfect, they're forever guilty. Instead of our sense that we're all fallen, we're all imperfect, and we need a God to forgive us, to, to let us off the hook. So this, this idea, this idea of denying reality, is not just on the issues of the day. I like to take the issues of the day and just show you how this is a general principle. It is a general principle. Let, let's talk about abortion. There are all these new laws going on. That are, they call them heartbeat laws that are in various states. They're limiting the time that you can have an abortion trying to. I guess it'll go to the Supreme Court and they'll be challenged. Six weeks, uh, AOC said, well, that's just two weeks, missing your period by two weeks. No, that means a new human being is forming. An amazing exchange, an amazing exchange on uh, CNN. Now, I know nobody watches CNN because there are more prostitutes uh, than CNN viewers at this point, and, and, well, there should be prostitutes at least do something for someone. Um, but, but here is Rick Santorum, obviously a very pro-life guy, Christine Quinn arguing the other side, and Chris Cuomo uh, negotiating in between. And listen closely to this argument, and especially the last line, but listen to the whole argument. The woman who was carrying that child, because let's say she was blind, and she decided she wanted to have a blind baby oh, too, so she can inject that baby with something that would blind the child, Rick, not kill it, just blind it. Rick, would that be okay? Rick, would you, you say are that's bringing okay? up. Look, you I'm going to go to Christine up. on the point, but I'll tell you what's not okay. I think perverting fact patterns, 
perverting realities perverting. and trying to demonize what people do. You guys make it sound like this is cheaper than condoms. This is easier than condoms. Right. So just go abort your babies. These are painful decisions for these women. They're these huge. are things they live with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I know, huge. and they think about it, and they think about it in a way that you never will, Rick. So you're projecting all these That's emotions true, and sensibilities I, on ethics I, on people in a decision you'll never make. And Rick, I let me and just say, Rick, let me just help and support. Oh, it's not in your body. Christine, last word to you. Yeah. Let's be clear here, Rick, with all of your distortions and horrible tales, I answered it numerous times. When a, when a woman gets pregnant, that is not a human being. <laughs> when a woman gets pregnant, that is not a human being inside her, she says, uh, which is the elevator pitch for a horror movie. I can just see going up to a producer. Here, here it is. Get this. A woman gets pregnant, but it's not a human being inside her. Uh, <laughs> but it's also what Cuomo said. This is a hard decision for people, which which really does sound pathological. It's like, you know, me saying, you know, you, you keep saying I was wrong to kill my wife, but it was a hard decision for me. I mean, who's the one who's being emotional? They are no longer dealing with reality. The reality is they want, they want to kill what is a human being because they think it solves a problem. It does solve problems. It does solve problems. But you're not allowed to kill people to solve your problems. That's not one of the things we do. If you want to see a guy swept up into the insanity of this, this this was going all over Twitter yesterday, and it's worth looking at. Brian Sims, he's a uh, Pennsylvania state legislator. He went out to the Planned Parenthood across the street from him and went after people who were praying for the babies. So he goes after these Christians. You have, I mean, you can hear it. You don't even have to see it. You can see it in his eyes, but you, you can hear the breath, the, the way he can't get control of his rage as he doxes these people on Twitter. And, well, I'll get back to that in a minute. Just listen. Hi, everyone. Uh, Representative Brian Sims here, and I am outside the Planned Parenthood at southeastern Pennsylvania. Oh, no, they're leaving now. What we've got here is a bunch of protesters, a bunch of pseudo-Christian protesters who've been out here shaming young girls for being here. Hi. And so here's the deal. I've got $100 to anybody who will identify any of these three. So we're going to donate to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. So look, a bunch of war. white people standing up in front of a Planned no, Parenthood, Christ war. shaming I'm people. Really There's sorry. nothing Christian about what you're doing. I'm nothing Christian at all about what you're doing. Hi, nothing Christian or loving or godly about what you're doing. So I've got $100 to anybody who will identify. $100. See if you got some friends out here. 100 bucks. It'd be easier if you just give me your name and your address. Where are you from? Uh, Lane Rich, what makes you think that it's your job to tell women what's right for their bodies? And the truth is, I'm not really asking because I don't care. Shame on you. <laughs> the rage in the guy. And by the way, we edited it out because we don't want to put it in there. But the guy just tells, he says, what's, what's your name and address? He tells him. <laughs> he doesn't care. He says, I'm not even asking because I don't want to know your point of view. Shame on you. Um, and you're not Christian. I mean, the rage is incredible. Later, he issued a, a non-apology, which I'm, I'm not going to play. It's not worth playing. But it's interesting to me that he wasn't banned from Twitter for doing this, uh, for doxing these people who were praying, doxing them for praying, which is really dangerous stuff to do. Who was banned? My friend David Horowitz was banned because he pointed out that Ilhan Omar was uh, wrong to support the terrorists in Palestine uh, who were on the Gaza Strip who are terrorizing and killing Israelis. He pointed that out. A comedy site uh, that made fun of Alexandria Occasional Cortex was banned, uh, maybe because it was competition with Alexandria Occasional Cortex making fun of herself. But the point is, you either go nuts or you silence every voice. 
you hold, you put your fingers in your ears and you whistle Dixie, you silence any voice that's talking about reality. Humankind can't bear too much reality and your only choice is censorship and madness and the left has gone for both. It really is. You know, we started out this week uh, talking about the fact that uh, the left is no longer reporting the news. Then we started out the fact that they have become a party about nothing because they can't deal with reality. And now there really are signs of absolute dementia. Uh, that's not the word I want. Absolute insanity uh, on the left as they try to wrestle with the fact that they're not describing reality. You can disagree about reality. You can disagree about how much government is needed uh, to deal with certain issues. That, that, that's not the point. They're not describing what is what real life is. A baby is a baby, even before it's born, it's a baby, it's a human being, there's just no question about it. And 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 Barack Obama did spy uh, on Donald Trump. Maybe you can make a case uh, that it was justified, let's see if we can, when we get all the facts uh, as they will come out. But all their, and, and Donald Trump has bragged about his debt. I mean, that's, that's the fact that, that he bragged about getting out of debt. They are no longer dealing with reality. We got the mailbag coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! uh, I will try and get through it. My voice is still weak, although it feels a lot better today. This is the first day it's really felt all right. Uh, so we'll get to the mailbag. But first, we got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. If you want to be in next week's mailbag, you got to go to dailywire.com and subscribe. We solve all your problems for a lousy 10 bucks a month and 100 bucks for the year. Plus, you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr, which you'll need because you'll be so happy. Only the left will be left crying. The mailbag. Was the scream? Yeah. <laughs> ZipRecruiter. I'm telling you guys, ZipRecruiter from Derek, from Derek. Uh, dear Andrew, the sexier twin of Thanos. The sexier twin of Thanos. Uh, I began seeing a girl back in October. We hit it off, but we were separated due to work arrangements for a month. And during that time, I realized she may not have been the girl I was looking for. Then it says in parentheses, I have a lot of personal issues, but that for another time. I ended up breaking up with her. Um, we were exclusive. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and she tells me that she's pregnant. This happened back in January. So January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. So we're getting toward uh, uh, delivery. All right. Since then, I've stepped up and been there for her, and I want to be there for the baby. We're both very pro-life. My question is, if I can't find it in myself to be with this girl in the future, absolutely nothing wrong with her, but due to my past, I have commitment issues and feel she deserves someone better than me, is it possible to have a solid relationship for the baby? This conundrum is constantly in my mind, and I'm not sure what to do. Thank you for everything you do, Derek. Okay, uh, here's the thing, Derek. The, the baby deserves parents who are married, who are there, who live together, and who love one another. I can't tell from your letter whether you have serious issues or whether you're just whining about the fact that you're a neurotic, okay? I can't tell. Um, if you have, when you say you have issues, if you're a serial killer or you're doing something really bad or you're an addict of some kind or something like this, the best thing for the baby would be adoption to two parents who can take care of him, her, uh, and love him or her. I mean, that would be the best thing, adoption. But if you're just whiny about the fact that you have commitment issues, get over your commitment issues, marry her, and be a parent to this person that you created. Um, I, I don't want to ruin either the baby's life or yours and this woman's, but to, to take care of a child is a full-time job. I mean, it takes you supporting his, the child's mother. 
It takes you supporting the child's mother in all kinds of different ways, not just financially, but also emotionally uh, and with help. Um, you know, it's, it, it's not something. It's something that takes two people to do. It takes a mom, very specifically, and it takes a dad. And if you guys are not going to be there for the baby, then give the baby up for adoption. Uh, second, the, the first best choice is if you can and if you are together enough, and I just can't tell from your letter if you're together enough, the first best choice is that you marry her, uh, you commit yourself to her, you treat this woman who is now the mother of your child with love and care and, uh, and um, solicitude, and give her and this child a good life. That's the top best thing. If you are incapable of doing that for reasons that I'm not, I don't know, uh, then adoption is the second best thing. And the third best thing, and it is a far third best, is that you simply are constantly around and making sure that you are giving financial and emotional support to the mother as she essentially raises this child. Uh, those are, are the options, and I can't tell from your letter which is the best one because I just can't tell how messed up you are or whether you're just complaining about the fact that you've got problems like all the rest of us. Um, you did this. You're responsible. You and this lady are responsible. So make sure your first responsibility is to this child. So make sure you make the best choice uh, given your situation. Uh, from Melissa, uh, as Christians, is it truly right to exercise our Second Amendment rights against a tyrannical government? Recently, I've heard an increasing number of pastors preach on submitting to all authorities from uh, 1 Peter 2.13. They teach a message that it's always wrong to rebel against the government or other institutions. I've also heard this to used to argue that the American Revolution was unchristian. This seem com seems completely wrong to me, but I'm struggling to demonstrate why their interpretation of this verse is incorrect. Any thoughts or insight would be deeply appreciated. Okay. This is a really complicated uh, subject that I will deal with as best I can because I thought about it a lot. One of the things you will notice about the Bible and about Christendom is that the Bible, for instance, never says that slavery is wrong. And yet, it's always Christians who have gotten rid of slavery. And so, you know, every, every uh, civil rights person, every um, abolitionist was a, a, devote, a devoted Christian. The Bible has many things uh, to say against homosexuality, and yet if you made a map of places where homosexuals are treated with respect and equality, and you made a map of Christendom, they'd be almost the same map. It is Christianity that has given dignity and uh, inclusiveness to gay people, even while many Christians still say homosexuality is a sin. How is that possible? Why does it mean? When you, the, the answer lies and when you look at Jesus and the way Jesus deals with issues of the day. A woman is brought to him who's committed adultery and is going to be stoned. That's wrong. It's wrong to stone somebody. It's wrong to throw rocks at somebody until they're dead, uh, certainly for adultery, but in any case. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, get rid of this, um, this standard, get rid of this law. He doesn't say, I overturn this law, I am, I am the Lord, I now hereby overturn the law. He says, okay, stoner, but let he who is without sin, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, which makes it impossible for anybody to carry out the law because none of us is without sin. He does this again and again. Uh, don't break the Sabbath, that's the law. And yet he breaks the Sabbath to do good. And he says, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. He does this over and over again. He takes the, um, he takes the institution that is there and he infuses it with love and humanity. And some institutions, when they are infused with love and humanity, are destroyed. Slavery, I think, would be a good example of that. 
that's not the way we did it. We did not get rid of slavery by infusing it with love and humanity. We got rid of slavery by staging a war which killed between six and 700,000 Americans. Which would have been better? Which would have been the better way? If we could have handled it, if we could have handled it in a Christian way, that would have been the right way. If we could have said, okay, you know, what the Bible says about, what the New Testament says about slavery is, okay, you hold slaves, but remember, when you go before God, he's not going to judge you as slave and master. He's going to judge you as human and human. That changes things. It's very hard to hold a slave when you know that you're going to stand before your Lord and he's going to say, uh, excuse me, but he's not a slave to me. He was just a slave to you. That changes everything. So our institutions should be changed by infusing them with love. Um, that's the way I feel we should treat gay people, no matter how you feel about homosexuality. That is the way I feel we should treat as many uh, people as we are capable of doing. There's always a tension in the world between the, the Christian world we know is coming, uh, in which people won't be given in marriage, in which there won't be slave and master, in which everybody will be equal in the eye of God. Th that world is coming, but it has not come. In this world, in this flawed, sinful world, sometimes we have to do the only thing there is to do. I cannot love my neighbor if he's attacking my wife. I have to fight him. I have to. That's what I have to do. And so when you, when you pick up a gun against your government, you better be damn well sure that that's the only way you can do it because you cannot stand by while the government enslaves, while it destroys, while it kills uh, innocent people. You can't stand by. You have to fight back. And so in this world that is not yet the world to come, we sometimes have to do what is wrong to get what is right accomplished. That's just the fact. And so you have to know that and behave in the tension of the eschatological world, the world that will come at the end, and the world that we're in. And there's no science to doing that. You have to play it as you see it, and that's the answer. Um, everything that Jesus teaches us is about the world that he, he's from, not the world that we're in. Uh, and sometimes, as, as Paul repeatedly points out, sometimes we have to uh, live in this world as it is. Um, all right, from Gerald. Um, Dear Andrew, the haven from insanity, Clavin, if you had to choose one American novel that every American had to read, what would it be? Well, I can't. I can never do this. I mean, I, there aren't that many great American novels, uh, interestingly enough. The movies have been really... What Americans have been really good at is entertainments, detective stories and things like that. Uh, obviously, the premier essential American novel is Huck Finn. And so if you have to read one American novel, it would be Huckleberry Finn. As Hemingway said, all other novels come from that. Um, it discusses so many of the issues that... Um, that define us and plague us, and it's a, it's a wonderful entertainment. Uh, other great novels, Studs Lonigan, overlooked because of the left. Uh, Augie March, overlooked because of the left. Augie March is a hard read. You have to be an, um, a sophisticated reader to read The Adventures of Augie March by Saul Bellow, but it's, it is a, a great American novel, maybe the greatest American novel. East of Eden by John Steinbeck, uh, The Great Gatsby, of course, uh, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, there, there are many, but Huck Finn is the essential one. So if I had to say one, it would be Huck Finn. Um, from Mitch, my dearest Clavin, I'm 24 years old and I haven't spoken with my father in about four years. Um, after he cheated on my mother the first time, I told him if he did it again, I wouldn't speak with him and he did it countless times. I've forgiven him, but I refuse to have that kind of person in my life. Uh, he did other things. He, when I was younger, he'd allow me to drink uh, underage and engage in other illegal behaviors. When I was 19, he left my mother with, and me with all the bills. Uh, since then, I've eliminated him from my life and have done significantly better. I earned my bachelor's degree. I took a job in another state. I got engaged. 
Um, am I wrong to keep him away and out of my life? What would you suggest? I don't miss him and I feel I'm better off. Um, I greatly value your wisdom. Okay, you're not wrong. Um, he's a destructive guy. Your first responsibility is to live the life God gave you. It is to uh, protect your wife, uh, your future wife and your future children from this guy who's just a bad guy. Piece of advice, okay, a piece of advice. The uh, Bible says to honor your father and your mother. That doesn't mean you have to let this guy into your life. It doesn't. You can forgive him in your heart and keep him out of your life because he's a destructive person. If it's possible and if he reaches out to you, without bringing him into your life, without letting him come near your fiance, without coming, letting him come near your children. It might be possible for you to approach him from time to time, simply to see him and pay the, him the respect of being your father. If that's possible, without harming yourself, without damaging yourself and your family, and if you can do that on your own, you don't have to give him anything, you don't have to look for anything. Don't look for him to be better, don't look for him to rehash the past with you, don't look for him to ask for forgiveness, but if on occasion you can go and visit him, if, if he calls for that, and even as he gets older and sicker, uh, if you can participate in making sure he's taken care of, you will feel better about that uh, when the end comes and when he's no longer there. Um, you do not owe him a place in your life. He has sacrificed that. He is no longer really your father in the biblical sense of the word, in the sense of having responsibility uh, for you or doing the things that he should have done. Um, you're absolutely right to do the things you do, but if you can, and he wants to establish a relationship in which you look for nothing from him, look for nothing from him, but occasionally visit and make sure he's taken care of, uh, I advise it because you'll feel better in the long run. Um, from Cody, dear Andrew, I truly enjoy listening to your wisdom each day and look forward to your unique perspective. I'm a Christian, uh, but have an artist brain, so your co commentary resonates with me. Um, I said something, you said something on Monday about uh, Christians watching Game of Thrones and engaging with modern culture because it represents real life. I basically agree with you, but could you explain why it is not hypocritical for a Christian to do this while still seeking to obey God's word and the commands to be holy, pure, and guard oneself from temptation? For example, if a married man who admittedly struggles with lust when he views nudity in films chooses to steer clear of it, um, is that an honorable choice? Yes, it is. And I actually meant to mention that. I was just speaking off the top of my head. I meant to mention that um, people... Um, have trouble with pornography, and if they see um, nude scenes like the ones in Game of Thrones, it's like taking heroin to an addict. Um, so yes, you should definitely, you know, I mean, there are other, I, I think I did say this at one point, um, there are other stories besides Game of Thrones that you should engage with. My point is that um, Christian art, true art does not look like Christian life. Conservative art does not look like conservative life. Um, and I don't think it's purity to deny the truth. I don't think it is being pure, none of us is pure anyway, I don't think it's being pure to uh, close your eyes and say, well, the world is a happy, wonderful place because I'm a Christian. Uh, I believe that that is the opposite of how you get wisdom. I believe it's the opposite of how you become more humane. It's the opposite of how you become forgiving. Uh, the path to being a better Christian does not lie through lies. It lies through the truth. And God is the God of the real world, not Candyland. And so you want to be able to see the truth and know the truth and know what human beings are like. Obviously, if you have specific issues that you're dealing with, um, like, like pornography addiction or it causes you to be uh, unfaithful to your wife, you shouldn't do it. And I did mention that, I think, at the time. But the idea is not to keep yourself pristine in some through denial. It is to make your decisions in life through your soul, not your body. 
It is to make, the, like I was talking before about racism. We all have racial, tribal things in our heads. So what? That's, what, that's the way we are. The question is, will you live by, the, by your lights instead of your feelings? Will you live by the things you know to be true? Will you treat each person as the image of God? If you do that, you'll be pure enough. I mean, that's, that's as pure as you're going to get. You're not going to get so pure that you elevate yourself out of that. Although, although the more you live your life directed toward God, uh, the more you will become like what you want to be naturally. Uh, last question. Uh, from Marie, dear Supreme Leader of the Multiverse, uh, I know I need to find a therapist. Um, things have happened in the past few years with my parents that made that brought up resentments I didn't know I really had. Um, it's not going away. My tendency towards anxiety plus stress at work is really taking a toll on me. It's hurting my marriage. I've allowed the fear of not being able to trust a therapist or not finding a good one be an excuse for keep putting it off. What kind of questions should I ask a therapist during a first session uh, to let me know I found someone who can help me? Uh, are there red flags I should be looking for? Uh, really good question. And unfortunately, I mean, there are, uh, an there are some answers, but they're not like, you know, ABC answers. Um, the, um, w the most important thing about a therapist is your relationship. So when you sit down with a therapist, and you shouldn't get a psychiatrist, they're mostly drug dealers these days, get a psychotherapist. Um, the, the most important thing is your relationship. Uh, when I was in therapy, which saved my life when I was a young man, um, I thought it was all about the Freudian insights and all about putting things together. And only later did I realize it was about the love uh, that I had for this guy this, who was my mentor and uh, the love that I actually think he had for me. And I think that that was really uh, what saved my life. So you, want, you don't need to find somebody you love. You need to find somebody you can relate to, somebody who you think, you think can be sympathetic to you and somebody you think uh, will listen to you and, and in an objective way and help you find out where you want to go, not where he or she wants you to go. Um, there are different uh, strains of therapy, um, and you probably want one that's more like the talk, uh, talking kind of therapy, uh, I would think, but you can decide that for yourself. Uh, Psychology Today has a therapist finder website. The best way to find a therapist is through a referral. It's by somebody else. Oh, yes, I went to this therapist, and he or she really helped me out. Uh, that's the best way to do it. But mostly when you sit with this person, be, feel free to ask them questions, but listen to the way they listen to you. Get a feeling for the person. You know, th these are people who are there to help you. They're trying to help you. Um, and so if, if you listen to the person and you feel, yes, I trust this person, this person is going to be all right, it's probably going to be all right. The most important thing is that you can establish a friendly and decent relationship. And obviously, there are incompetence and dishonest people, uh, but your odds are pretty good, especially if you get a referral. If you can't get a referral from a person, uh, go to your doctor, and the doctor may know somebody. Uh, who's good. Or like I said, use the uh, Psychology Today Therapist Finder. Uh, that could work too. But you shouldn't be afraid. This is a good thing. Um, if you, It's really good that you know you need a therapist. That's an excellent thing. And, um, and these people are trained to help you. So like, why start from a point of view of mistrust? Uh, if you find a reason to mistrust them later on, uh, then you can act on that. But, but mostly, mostly we mistrust therapists most of the time because we're trying to protect the things that hurt us. Uh, we, we hold on to the things that hurt us because they, they're there for a reason. And a therapist can help you find what those reasons are so you can get rid of them. I got to stop. But I will be back tomorrow. I can't believe it's already Wednesday. This week is flying past. But I will be here continuing to fly into the Clavenless weekend. Uh, I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Oh, hooray, hoorah. 
The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Walsh Show today, there's this bill in Georgia just became law that makes it illegal to abort a baby after the heartbeat can be detected. Now, the left is reacting to this law about as calmly as you might expect, and we'll discuss, including a leftist who who claims that, she said this on CNN, that an unborn baby is not a human being. We will analyze that claim today on the show. Also, what is soligamy? I'll explain that. And I want to talk about an important fatherhood lesson that I recently learned. Uh, We'll discuss all of that today over on The Matt Walsh Show.